You are listening to Moments in the Word, brought to you by Lighthouse Gospel Ministries. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for this morning, for your goodness, your grace, your mercy to us. It's abundant. It's more than we could ask or think, as the pastor mentioned earlier this morning. Thank you for this great church, as well as for the opportunity to open your word and to feed upon you the living bread, the life-giving bread, the bread that came down from heaven to do the will of the Father. Teach us this morning, convict us, draw us ever closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles this morning to 2 Samuel 12, if you would. 2 Samuel 12. I have a pretty simple message this morning. Um, God is very big. Um, He's not one-dimensional. When people talk about God, a lot of times they fall one direction or the other, don't they? You have the liberal Christian crowd, which God's all love. He's fluffy. He's marshmallow. He just wants everyone to be happy and to have the best they can have. And then they're all coming with him to live in the skies. And that's, that's one direction. Then you have those like the street preaching crowd we talked about. It's all wrath. God just hates everybody. God just can't wait to squish everybody who goes just an inch the wrong direction. Then you have some who are kind of in the middle, right? But not quite balanced. I grew up in a lot of churches, and, and the pastor probably can identify with, with my situation, where they preached the, the, the love of God and, and the judgment of God, but it was as if if you, if you look the wrong direction, God just can't wait to pummel you. I, was, I mean, I grew up to be afraid of God. Like, man, he is a wrathful, wrathful being. But if we're, if we're to look at the Bible and all of its teaching, we find that God is wrath, we can all agree, right, against sin. God hates sin. But God is love. Oh, God loves righteousness. God loves his people who call on his name, doesn't he? God loves sinners. For God so loved the world. The world that he loved, was it full of righteous people? No. But he gave his only begotten son, right, so that they could become righteous people. So God is both wrath and grace combined in one being who perfectly exhibits both mercy and justice. And if we don't appreciate that that point of view, we, we tend to go one direction or the other. God is all this or God is all this. God is fair. Amen. God is just. God loves mercy. Okay? But God treasures his judgment. He treasures his justice. I mean, the Bible says he is going to bring justice to the nations. Right? That everybody will stand before him one day and give an account. And let me tell you this. I don't believe that God's going to stand there and weep as he throws people in the lake of fire. His justice is too great, too important. Without justice, there can be no righteousness. But God also loves when sinners come to him. Isn't he such an amazing God? Wrath and grace finally woven together. You and I, we cannot duplicate this, can we? No. Even in my most righteous anger, there's, there's sin in there, right? I can't be perfectly righteously angry. You know why? Because I'm not perfectly righteous. I'm a sinner, yeah. right? And I can't love perfectly. I find oftentimes that when I do love, if I test my true motives, I find that I'm trying to get something for myself. I don't love them for them, right? Don't get me wrong. God gets something out of our salvation, doesn't he? The praise and glory due to his name. But when he saves us, he saves us to rescue us from something we could never rescue ourselves from. 
You understand that? That is pure mercy and grace that God sheds on us. And so as I was thinking about the mercy and the justice of God, my mind went to no one better than King David, whose life so well pictures the mercy and the justice of God, the tender mercy and yet the righteous indignation of God against sin. So 2 Samuel 12 we're going to read the first 14 verses, beginning at verse number 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him, and he said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And has taken his wife to be thy wife, and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up, against thee, uh, raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and will take thy wives from before thy eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son." For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because that, uh, by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. What a powerful passage. The display right before us, of the justice and the mercy of God. In the preceding chapter, we're all familiar with David's sin with Bathsheba. I would have loved to have read that. We don't have time to read two chapters. But uh, in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, David sees Bathsheba. And he inquires about her. He finds out she's married. Does that stop him? No, no, no. Verses 4 through 5, David takes her and he has an affair with her. I'm going to take a break here for a minute and point out I think I need to point out, I shouldn't need to, but I think I do need to. The Bible never assigns guilt to Bathsheba. Let's be honest. It never hints that she did anything wrong. Okay? Um, I think what we see with David and Bathsheba is a form of rape. I don't think she was a willing participant. Because the Bible is very, very clear who's right and who's wrong. It doesn't hide the sins of even its greatest characters. But it never gives us Bathsheba as being in sin for this act. Perhaps uh, he overpowered her. Perhaps he didn't. Perhaps he used his position as king, his power and influence. Either way, it's still rape. It's still forced. She still was not consenting, okay? Um, I say that, and I have to say that, because I've heard pastors and pastors' wives recently teach that Bathsheba was some seductress who was trying to ruin a good man. And he was, she was trying to draw his heart away from God. And he, she was trying to flaunt her body to draw. Let me, let's be honest. The Bible never says that. Okay? The Bible never says that. And unfortunately, that's usually taught by people who have committed the sexual sin themselves or covered for others who did. Yeah. Okay, I've heard pastors' wives go to uh, young women abused by youth pastors and say, you've ruined a good man. Wow. 
as if the victim is the one to blame. So that's what they're doing with Bathsheba. The Bible never assigns blame to her. All the blame goes to David, okay? Let me show you uh, some good Bible to back this up. Go to Proverbs 31 real quickly. Proverbs 31. It's believed that Proverbs 31 is where Solomon is sharing wisdom talked to him by his mother Bathsheba. I want you to see a couple of verses there. And I say this because you're bound, if you're in church any length of time, to hear somebody blame Bathsheba for David's downfall, okay? The Bible doesn't do that. David sinned against God. David knew what he was doing. David, the king, was in complete control of that situation, okay? Proverbs 31, look at verse 2. What my son, and what the son of my womb, and what the son of my vows. Now Bathsheba conceived a son with David out of wedlock, right? And she conceived Solomon in wedlock. So I think the, the son of my vows statement is very important to the fact that this is Bathsheba talking to Solomon. Verse 3. Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. It was lust for a woman that ruined King David. Uh, Bathsheba is warning Solomon not to let the vices that destroyed his father destroy him. That tends to happen. Have you noticed that in families? Sons repeat the sins of their fathers. That's right. Right? Um, Bible college graduates repeat the sins of the pastors they were trained under. Right? We need to look at these sins. We need to look at these men who commit these sins. You say, are we, are we supposed to hate them? No. We're to learn from them. Don't repeat that. Don't do what they did. That's what she's telling Solomon. You're going to be king now. Don't do what he did. That ruined him. You won't ruin a good man. The sinful heart of that good man. Yeah. And she's telling Solomon, put up barriers. Don't do those things that he did. Right. Look at verses 4 and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. I, I have a strong belief that David was intoxicated when the whole thing happened, and that's the purpose of this warning here. He forgot the law of God. He perverted justice. Who's the afflicted one? Her and, her and Uriah were the afflicted ones. He perverted justice in the land. He forgot the law of God. He sinned against God. He was lounging around the house, lounging around the, the, where, where, the palace where he lived, probably, I believe, drinking probably under the influence of alcohol. She's saying, don't give yourself to those things that your father gave himself to. Solomon didn't listen, did he? No. He loved many, many strange, many foreign women. He loved many false gods. He perverted justice in the land. Read Ecclesiastes. That, you can sum up Ecclesiastes with one phrase, I should have listened. I should have listened to the warnings of a godly mother and a godly woman. So I don't believe Bathsheba was to blame. I believe she was a godly woman. I believe David was to blame. Keep that in your mind. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. I want the blame of David to be before us because we're going to see God display both wrath and grace to a very guilty man. You say, why, why do people blame Bathsheba for David's sin? Well, I, I mentioned before, you know why a lot of these pastors and youth pastors do it? Because they've committed these same sins, and they use their position and authority to do it. The same way David did. I don't hear a lot of youth pastors tackling girls and raping them, but I've heard a lot of them seducing them through their position, through their authority in their lives, becoming a, a new father to them. Yeah. Right? Correct. The same thing David did. Yeah. Listen, if we're going to guard against that in our church, and I'm not accusing him of this church, but if we're going to guard against that in our churches, we need to learn from the mistakes of others. Yeah. Right. We need to learn. Because if we're going to blame Bathsheba, we're going to blame the girl who is abused in our churches. Right. Very easily. No, no. We need to hold people accountable for the actions that they do. Because we're going to see God's going to hold David accountable. God's going to hold David accountable. Continuing the timeline of events leading up to our text, David, after his sin and the news of the pregnancy, decides to cover it up by killing Uriah. That's in 2 Samuel 11, 6-25. Then 2 Samuel 11, 26 and 27, we see David take Bathsheba as his own wife, right? And then coming to chapter 12, 
were probably about nine months after the events of chapter 11. We know that because the baby's been born, okay? The baby exists here in the world. It's been born. So we know that we're at least nine months after the sin. Now, uh, some would say, I've read scholars who say that David had private confession before God of his sin. I don't know. I don't know. But I tend to think that for the last nine months, David has been brooding in his sin. I think he's been just soaking in his sin. I think he's had very little to no communion with God. I think his heart has grown hardened. Ah, I got away with it, right? God doesn't see. God doesn't know. I'm still a righteous man. Everyone thinks I'm a righteous man. After all, he married Bathsheba right away so that nobody, nobody would know the timeline of events with the baby. They don't know. Listen, people not knowing our sins is dangerous to us. We should be open with each other about our faults and our sins. People not knowing about our secret sins, you know what happens? We get honored and praised and lifted up, and we start to think, I'm not, I'm not so bad. Right. <laughs> Nobody's perfect, and they don't know what I did, but I'm not so bad. We're going to see in a minute. When David hears this parable, he's going to stand up. He, he doesn't stand up and, you know, just declare his own judgment. What does he say? As the Lord lives, I'm going to speak for the Lord. I'm going to, I'm going to have a righteous. He still sees himself as a righteous man yeah. at this point. Can you imagine that? You've taken advantage of a woman, killed her husband, married her secretly so nobody knows, and now you're going to sit here and you're going to say, as the Lord lives, I'm going to pronounce righteous judgment. And this, What in the world? How deceived can you be? Very deceived, because I've been there myself. When people don't know your sins. Remember, I told you, I think I've told you guys here before. It's dangerous. I, I'm not a big fan. I know you guys do it here. I'm not a big fan of churches when they have the youth group do the service. I'm very cautious about young preachers. I'm talking about 15, 16-year-old I'm very cautious. I know the churches have a good heart, right? We want to encourage them to serve the Lord. We want to encourage young preachers to, to be godly young men. But, man, I... Vanity is dangerous to the soul. I've been where David is. I, I was the 15-year-old boy in the youth group who wore the nice suit and preached the nice sermon. And everybody said, what a great young man he was. And I went home and watched pornography. You know why? Because they, they didn't know. They didn't know that I didn't care about any of the things I was saying. Because I knew the language, right? I knew the right words. I knew how to sound Christian. I knew how to look Christian. Right? And they never knew it. And that is so dangerous yeah. to the soul. Yeah. Because I could have just gone on that way and perished in my sin and nobody would have ever known. So I've sat where David sat. And I've had a Nathan in my life. Good. Listen, don't worry about making people feel good. Be a Nathan. Amen. Call out sin when you see it. Amen. Because it's dangerous not to. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to the soul. One of the lessons that we see in this story is don't let your sin go unconfessed. Don't let your heart harden. Sin is deceitful. Unconfessed sin, undealt with sin, will harden the heart. It will. Don't think, okay, I can just cover it up and I'll go on my way and nobody will know. No, your heart will grow hard against God. You will grow into more and more and more sin. Do you know that nobody ever falls away in one day? Nobody walks away from the faith in one day. Nobody wakes up and goes, yeah, I'm just not a Christian anymore. Yeah. No, it's sin, right? Little sin and bigger sin and sin that nobody knows about until finally the person just leaves and they walk away. And you think, what happened to them? They were in church just a couple weeks ago. They were just, they, they're, they're just as godly as ever. no. No, their heart was growing hard. Their heart was being deceived that whole time. And now it finally climaxed with them walking away from the faith, right? But it was building that whole time. It's deceitful. Sin is deceitful. So let's get into our text. The Lord sends Nathan the prophet to speak to David. He allowed him to remain in his sin long enough. God is patient for a time. God is patient for a time. Nathan, of course, would be killed if he came into the king and openly accused him of murder. 
So Nathan decides to tell a little parable, tell a little story. Look at verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he said unto him, uh, he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man here, I think, represents David, the poor man Uriah. Verse 2. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds in light of the circumstances of this meeting. I think it's safe to say the, the many flocks and herds, they represent the many wives and concubines of King David that he had. Verse 3, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, uh, bought and nourished up. And he grew up together with him, with his children, and did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. The poor man Uriah had only one wife. He didn't have many he had one, one wife, one beautiful young woman. And this verse demonstrates what kind of a husband Uriah was, doesn't it? He was loving, kind, tender with her, sharing with her all that he had. Verse 4, And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spread, uh, spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring stranger that was coming to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. I think the traveler... It's probably picturing the lust that David had, that moment of lust that came to him, that visitor that came into his heart that day. And he could have satisfied that lust by going to his own flocks and herds, right? Yep. Amen. He had many wives and concubines. Yep. He, could have, he could have provided for that traveler the right way. Amen. But instead he went to this poor man who had only one wife, and he took her. By the way, I don't think in this parable the poor man didn't give up the lamb willingly. He took it, right? I don't think Bathsheba was a willing partner. I think he took her, okay? I go back to that again. I don't think he t uh, he, she was consenting to it. I think the king had power and authority that he leveraged to take that from the poor man. But he had his own flocks and herds with which to satisfy this traveler. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. Verse 5. And David's anger was kindled, well, greatly kindled against the man. He had great anger. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. David is furious at the man in the parable. He declares that he should die. Now, according to the law of Moses, you don't die for stealing. You restore what you've stolen. But David, he's just so angry that someone would do this. Just so appalling to him. How dare this man? David's making his judgment purely out of anger. Verse 6. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Uh, David is sentencing the man here according, according to the dictates of Exodus 22 verse 1. And of course he's pronouncing his own judgment. Keep in mind, David restored fourfold. He took the life of Uriah. He lost the baby, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. He gave four sons, four lives for that one that he took. Now comes the moment of truth, verse 7. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. You're, you're angry, David? You think he did wrong? I'm talking about you. Right. You did that. You're the rich man. You're guilty. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. He says to David, You think that's bad what the man did? <laughs> you didn't just steal someone's lamb. You took his wife and you murdered him to cover your own sin. David's righteous anger didn't seem so righteous anymore, did it? Now it seems like hypocrisy. How dare he pronounce judgment as if he's righteous? How dare he? Hypocrisy is the natural result of hiding our sins. It is. Unless we're going to just come out and walk away from the church today and say, you know what, I'm not a Christian, I'm leaving this place. If we're just hiding that sin inside, keeping it to ourselves, it leads to more sin and to more sin. And then pretty soon we're hypocrites. 
Yeah. We're hypocrites. There are pastors today in America who are preaching against adultery and having affairs with people in their church. Yep, that's right. There are pastors in America today preaching against homosexuality, having homosexual affairs. Yes. I remember, he's not a Christian. We've got to straighten that out. Republicans aren't Christians. Christians aren't, you know. A Republican can be a Christian, but not all. But in the 90s, there was a Republican Speaker of the House who was leading the charge in family values and opposing the Democrats and their anti-family then we find out after he's retired, he was been molesting teenage boys. What a hypocrite. What a hypocrite. But by the way, before we sit in judgment of these guys, how many of us have done the same thing? We've sinned. We've covered it up. And then we act as though we're the righteous judge in everybody else's lives. Sin is deceiving. It'll make you think you're right when you're not right. And it'll make you think that you're better than everybody else when you're hiding sin in your own life. Right. Sin deceives by its very nature. And so now David, he's angry. How dare he do that? How dare he steal something from somebody else? I'm going to pronounce this judgment in the name of the Lord. Oh, by the way, David, we know that you stole something of greater value than a sheep. And then you killed the man to cover it up. How deflated do you think David was in that moment? I kind of picture in my mind David standing up with his finger in the air, pronouncing judgment, and then he says, You are the man. He goes, Oh, sick to his stomach. I am. I am. I've done so much worse than the man in the story, right? God said, I gave you the kingdom of Israel. I saved you from the hand of Saul when he wanted to kill you. Verse 8. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto you, uh, unto thee such and such things. God gave to David Saul's house, meaning his possessions, his wealth, his servants, his wives to do with as David pleased. He gave him the kingdom of Israel and Judah. The first time the kingdom had been united, it was united under King David. He reigned over the entire kingdom of Israel. He gave David things he had never given to Saul. And then God goes on and says, if you'd asked for more, I would have given you more. Man, all you had to do, David, was ask me for something, and I would have given it to you. This should give us pause when we face the temptation to sin. God has rescued us from our sin. God has shed his grace abundantly on us. He has united us to Christ so that all that is Christ's is ours. We are joint heirs with the Son of God. He has promised, if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. When we're tempted to sin, do we think about all that God has given us? No, no. We think about those, those, that one thing that he hasn't given us. Yeah. We're going to take that. And God comes to us and says, didn't I give you my son? Didn't I give you freedom from your sin? Didn't I give you all that I gave to my son? I give to you. And then I said, anything you want, in my name, ask it, I'll give it to you. But we go and we take that one thing that we're not supposed to have. Adam faced that same dilemma, didn't he? Yeah. God gave him every tree in the garden, yeah. held back one, held back one. And Adam says, thank you, I'll take that. All the trees, I don't know how many there were, maybe thousands of trees. He said, no, I, I want that one. I want that one. David had all those wives and concubines right there in the palace. But he said, you know what? I want that one. That one that I can't have. That one thing. God has promised us all things in Christ, holding back from us only those things that violate his character. That's what sin is. Sin is those things that violate the nature and character of God. That's all he's held back from us. 
And what do we do? We ignore the treasures that are in Christ, and we seek those things that violate the character and nature of God. He's given us all things, and we constantly reach for those things. But he has said, you, should, you can't have that. Yeah. You can't have that. David turned against the Lord's command, verse 9. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. He did evil in the sight of the Lord by uh, despising the commandment of the Lord, specifically the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, he stole his neighbor's wife, which could also implicate him in violation of the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. God condemns him for the murder of Uriah. Okay. Let's understand this. Did David kill Uriah? No. He sent him to battle in a way that he would be killed. He killed him by the sword of the Ammonites. But his intention was for Uriah to die. Having, and it may not be a problem here, but this goes out on the internet. Having somebody kill somebody for you makes you just as guilty as if you did it yourselves. If anyone's considering abortion, keep that in mind. You pay someone to kill your baby, you have murdered your child. Let's be honest with that. Okay? The fact that he didn't actually lay hands on Uriah doesn't mean anything. God judges the heart, the intentions of the heart. Verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. The sword would never depart from the house of David. Why? Because he despised God. Okay. Now in the last verse, he despised the commandment of the Lord. In this verse, he says, you despise me. Okay. If you despise the law, you despise the lawgiver. Okay. If you despise the commandment, you despise the commandment giver. Every sin, every sin that we commit, you or me, is a despising of God himself. Right? Um, one pastor had said it this way. He said, every time I sin, I'm saying that what that sin offers me in that moment is greater than what God offers me in resisting it. That's what we're saying. That's the choice we're making when we sin. The sword would never depart from the house of David. Because he despised the Lord. Jesus echoed the same thought in John 5, 23, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honored not the Son, honored not the Father which has sent him. You honor the Lord Jesus Christ, you honor the Father. You despise the Lord Jesus Christ, you despise the Father. If you reject the Son whom the Father sent, you reject the Father himself. Uh, every sin is a sin against God because sin is a reflection Well righteousness is a reflection of the nature of the character of God. Sin is a violation of the character of God, right? God says, thou shalt not bear false witness because God is honest and true, yeah. right? Um, and so every, everything that, you look at the commandments and they all picture something that's a violation of the, of the character of God. God tells David that he destroyed another man's home so trouble will rise up from his own home. David took Bathsheba secretly and private, but his wives will be violated publicly for all to see. This reminds me of Luke 12, 2 through 3. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which you have spoken in the ears in, in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Psalm 90, verse 8. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Yeah. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Say, why shouldn't I hide my sins? Besides the fact that it makes us bitter, right, and hard towards God, because God's going to bring everything to light one day. Nothing will stay hidden. Those things that we try to cover up, God's going to reveal for everyone to see. You cannot fool God. You can fool your wife. You can fool your husband. You can fool your kids, your parents, your grandparents, your pastor. I talk about, go back to when I was in the youth group. I fooled everybody but one person. Yeah. One person seated on the throne in heaven. He had my number. Amen. And he knew everything. 
And at a later time, he brought to light everything that I worked so hard to keep in the dark. Because you can't fool God. You can't trick him. You can't hide anything. That which we... Uh, yeah. I don't know why I think about this. I shouldn't think about this in church, Pastor. But I think about the, the movie Batman Returns. You guys ever watch that? <laughs> Dan DeVito, the only man who was born to play the penguin. <laughs> He's talking to, to that, the bad guy in the movie, Max Shrek. He brings up all this bag of stuff that he's been flushing down into the sewer where the penguin lived. Right. He says, you flush it, I flaunt it. Yeah. Works the same way with God. <laughs> you hide it, he exposes it. Yep. You put darkness over it, he sheds light on it. That's right. You tuck it away in the closet, he puts it on the rooftop. That's right. Our sins are not hidden from God. He sees all things. Verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David is broken under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He confesses not only that he has sinned, but sinned against the Lord. He knows he has despised the Lord by despising the commandments of God. He knows that under the law, he deserves death. Isn't it funny? The man in the story he was condemning to death didn't deserve death. But he deserves death. He's worse than the man that he's pronouncing judgment on. He deserves death for having murdered Uriah. Go on in the verse. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Can you feel this morning David's relief and gratitude? If you're saved, you should. Because we've all heard that same declaration. When you come to Christ and he saves you, you shall not surely die. Amen. Well, we deserve death for our sins, don't we? We deserve condemnation for our sins, don't we? But what happens when we get saved? He puts our sin away. Yeah. As far as the east from the west. And he declares us not guilty, even though we quite clearly are guilty. I can feel David's relief in this moment. Amen. I can feel his gratitude towards God in this moment. In the words of the prophet Nathan, we are the man or woman. We are. Sinful people. Guilty of violating the law of God. We stand guilty. We stand condemned. We have despised him by despising his law. And yet we shall not die. Our sins put away from us. How did God put away our sin? By punishing Jesus as our substitute. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. He wasn't just cursed for us. He was made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him, that's Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might become, or be made the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin, he who never despised the law of the Father, he who said, I do always those things that please the Father, he who was completely innocent became guilty so that we could be innocent in him. And still we look at sin and we go, mm, that looks good. I think I'll indulge in that just a little bit. Nobody has to know. You know who knows? The one who became sin for us. It should cause us sorrow to break the law of God. It should cause us sorrow to sin against God. It should break our hearts. Not because we're going to be condemned, but because he was condemned. And he did nothing wrong. The innocent suffered in place of the guilty on Calvary. And God has put away our sins. Like David, if you're saved... We shall not die. We will never face the punishment of our sins. I love Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. No condemnation. There is nothing to condemn us. We're united to Jesus Christ. We have his righteousness. As far as God's concerned, it's like we never sinned in the first place. And all that Christ inherits, we inherit with him. All the mercy of God. There's one more issue that God has to deal with, though, with David. Verse 14. Howbeit, because of this deed, or because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. The nations around them will hear that the king of Israel has, been, has violated the law of God. and God overthrew many of these nations because of their sin. Right? They know that. They remember the works of God. 
leading them to the promised land. He pronounced judgment. He, he cast them out of the land. And now they're going to look and say, well, the king of Israel, he has sinned a great sin. Now is God going to just overlook their sin? Maybe God's going to treat them differently than he treats us. Maybe he punished us. Maybe it's okay for them to sin. Would he allow sin among his own people to go unpunished after so visibly judging the sins of the other nations? The answer is no. No. That means the baby will have to die. The punishment, by the way, is also a mercy. This, patient, this baby would have grown up with a reputation on him. He would have been the cause of many to sin and say, it's okay to sin. Look, he, that's where he came from. <laughs> the king that took over after David, he, he came from a sinful relationship. It's kind of a mercy, I think, that God took the baby's life. But God taking the life of that baby was a powerful statement to the nations around them, saying sin is sin is sin is sin, and I am just, and I will not tolerate sin. He punished sin on David's life. God will always punish sin. Always. That's why a substitute was necessary on Calvary. Think about that. Think about that. If God had simply allowed us to be forgiven and to walk free, what could he say about his justice? Very little. Very little. He'd be that marshmallow God we hear about in some of these other churches. Yeah. Sin has to be punished. But he wants to save sinners. That means he has to punish their sin somewhere else. In comes Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Turn there briefly. We're almost done here. Romans 3, 25. I want you to see this. I love this passage of scripture. Another picture of the grace and the wrath of God. Romans 3.25, this is speaking of Jesus, as we, we can see in verse 24, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So God set forth Jesus to be the propitiation. This means uh, satisfaction. And reconciliation. That's what propitiation means. Satisfaction and reconciliation, right? So his death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God against our sin and reconciled us to God. And so if God had just let us go free from our sins, he just jeopardized his justice. He doesn't care about sin. And if he had done that, he makes a powerful statement admitting he's wrong for judging all these people beforehand. That's what you say, well, you're saying God's wrong? If he violates his own nature, yes. But he doesn't do that. Right. By punishing Jesus, he punished our sins in Jesus Christ. And now he can be both just and the justifier. Why? Because he doesn't let us go free. He still punishes our sins. But now he can justify us because the punishment doesn't fall to us. It fell to his son. Wrath and grace is found in Jesus Christ. Amen. Wrath and grace is found in Jesus Christ. By punishing Jesus in our place, our sins have been judged, condemned, and punished in him. And now God can be just and still allow us to go free and have eternal life. Let me make some quick application and close up here. If you're a believer this morning, don't allow sin to fester. Don't give it a place to live because it will grow. It will get bigger and bigger it will take over your heart. It will squeeze out everything else that you have in your heart. You say, oh, I'm hiding a small sin right now, but I still love Jesus. Give it time, you won't. Give it time, you won't. You won't. It consumes sin. It deceives us, right? That's not that bad. I can live with that. No. It deceives us. Oh, they'll never know. Let's just hide it. They don't have to know. No. It deceives us, and it consumes us. It so utterly consumes us. You know who had a secret sin? Judas Iscariot. No one knew that he was a thief and a liar. And the ultimate moment of his life was when he went down in history as the man who betrayed the Son of God to death. Do you think he intended to do that from the beginning? Of course not. No. But sin grew. It festered. Let me urge you, Christian, don't let sin take root in your life. 
it will destroy you like it destroyed David, like it destroyed Solomon. Solomon had warnings. He knew better. My goodness, he knew better. He had the, the example. Remember in, uh, I've gone too long. You remember in uh, Daniel 5 when Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, brings out all the temple stuff and throws a big party with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm always moved by Daniel's admonishment to him where he tells him, it's not just what you're doing, right? But you saw what God did with Nebuchadnezzar, your father. You've seen the power of the God of Israel. And knowing that, you're still doing what you're doing. Right. You know better. Yeah. And Solomon, he knew better. He got to watch the downfall of the great King David. And why did David fall? Because he let sin take hold. He said, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven either way. Don't let sin take root in your life. If you're a Christian, it will harden your heart. It'll make sinning easier. Don't worry about your reputation. Say, it'll kill my reputation if they find out. If If they don't, it'll kill you. Good. Then kill your reputation, but save your soul. Amen. Good. If you're not saved, you're hearing this sermon. God will not allow sin to go unpunished forever. The fact that your sins have not yet been judged does not mean God's okay with them. It means God's being merciful. Amen. Don't despise the day of God's mercy. Don't do it. He's allowing you space to repent. Don't presume upon his grace but dive headfirst into it. Cover yourself in the grace of God by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in his sacrifice on the cross. Take his death as your death. That's what salvation is. Bow the knee to Christ as Savior, or one day you will bow to him as judge. And there's no salvation at that point. Once you die, there's no second chance. His mercy endures forever to his people but his wrath abides eternally on those who reject his love and grace and salvation. I'll close with Revelation 14, 10 through 11. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night. I mentioned earlier that God is not sad over those who perish. We get that false impression in church a lot of times. I I hear people say that, you know, hell is separation from God. But, you know, it's not entirely true. You know how I know that? Because the verse I just read says they're tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Hell is separation from the goodness and grace and mercy of God. He is infinitely satisfied with the judgment of the wicked. Because he loves justice. But he's infinitely willing to save us as well. Mm-hmm. If we'll come to him by faith. We'll see his face. It says in that same book in Revelation, his face will be in their foreheads. He has fellowship with his. He loves those who are his. The message there is come to him and be one of his. Amen. Partake of his grace. Because God is both grace and justice. And everyone who ever lives in this world will take part in one of those two things, either his grace or his justice. By the way, if you're saved, you say, oh, I'm already on the grace side, so I can go on sinning? Mm-mm. No. no. If that's your point of view, it might be a sign that you're not truly saved. Yeah. That's right. But listen, those whom the Lord loves, he corrects, doesn't he? Amen. He chastises his children. Amen. He will not let sin go unpunished. Bring your sins out in the open. Me too. Because if not, God will drag them out before everyone. God is just, but he's gracious. He's gracious. Come to him. In David's sin with Bathsheba, we see on display both the wrath of God against sin and the righteous character of God upholding his law as well as abundantly, abundantly shedding on David his grace and his justice. And he offers us the same thing, folks. I don't know who the message is for, the unsaved more or the saved, but for the unsaved, come to Christ. But for Christians, listen, don't let sin get a hold in your heart. Don't do that. God has offered us in Christ all things. 
We inherit all things that Jesus inherits. He has given us access to everything but those few things that violate his character. Don't despise the gifts that God has given us and say, I want this over here. Don't do what David did. Don't do what Adam and Eve did. May we be like Christ and say, I do always those things that please the Father. I aim to follow the will of God in all things. Don't give sin a foothold. It will consume you. It will consume me. And in the end, it seems fun. It seems enjoyable. But it destroys us and leaves us a heap of nothing. A heap of nothing. There's no reward in sin. No joy in the end. It cuts. It doesn't heal. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Their patience to listen. I've been so burdened by this lately, Lord. Thinking about all that you've given us in Christ. All of the riches of our inheritance. And so often I turn to those things for which you suffered, which give no lasting pleasure. I turn to those things that destroy the soul instead of those things which edify the soul. It starts, Lord, by loving you more. Help us to love you more. Help us to love you more than sin. Help us to see that though that pleasure may last for a little moment, it's going to destroy us. Lord, the only way, the only way we're going to avoid falling into sin is to treasure you more. If we don't treasure you, our hearts will find something else to treasure. And it will find that which destroys the heart. So, Lord, anybody here who needs to be saved, Lord, I pray they would be saved. I pray they'd stop wallowing in the filth of sin. They come to you for salvation, for cleansing. I pray you'd make them tired of living as they have been living. And for every Christian in this room, me included, Lord, help us to treasure you more. Because if we don't, we'll find something to treasure. We will. Adam didn't treasure the trees that you gave him. David didn't treasure the wives that you gave him. Lord, I think it was Solomon it was Solomon that said, the whole duty of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. Help us, Lord, to be satisfied in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Moments in the Word. Lighthouse Gospel Ministries is an outreach ministry focused in street and prison evangelism, as well as reaching the needy with hope and help. To partner with us financially, go to gospelbeacon.org. All donations are tax deductible. We hope you were blessed and hope you will join us again for Moments in the Word.